Please join me in the prayer for illumination. Let us pray. O God of wisdom, you delight in deep truth. Let these words of scripture teach our hearts that we may hear your joy and gladness for the sake of Christ, your wisdom for us, we pray. Amen. Our scripture today is from Ephesians uh, chapter 4, the first 16 verses. Hear these words. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope for, of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith of, wit, of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we've been preaching through Ephesians over the last couple of weeks. We are in chapter four, right? Um, and uh, there are a few more to go. We've been making the argument that Ephesians helps us to get geared up for life. That, that Ephesians, each of the chapters, especially chapter one, two, and three, tells us about a blessing that we've received as a child of God. And that chapters 4, 5, and 6 are where Paul, or a student of Paul, is telling us, Scripture is telling us, that there are some responsibilities given that we've received those gifts. And so as we gather together today to look at that first of those three responsibilities, we uh, begin reading Scripture and it says, I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, 
this passage is often thought of as the passage that pushes for unity. And now that I've remembered after my music uh, stand, (laughs) I really want to ask you, how do you use the word exotic? Just think for a moment. How does the word exotic come together in your vocabulary? Just a moment thinking about exotic, right? What I've realized is that we don't use the word exotic very often anymore. When we do use the word exotic, um, it's usually about animals or places or cars, sometimes women or food, right? Exotic. Exotic is something other, maybe alien. Now, it comes from the Greek prefix exo, which usually means something alien or foreign. So, so think about it for a second. I, I was, uh, you know, raised here um, north of Houston in the woodlands. And when I think about it, um, no one ever said, I'm going on an exotic vacation to Dallas. No one said, I'm, I'm having an exotic lunch at McDonald's. That exotic word is interesting. It, it kind of tells us that we're going to encounter something that's different, something strange, something other, something that's not normal. When you hear the word exotic, It might conjure up in you an explorer headed through the jungle, pulling back the branches and peering through a dense jungle to find something curious, a a new flower, a new plant, a different animal. As Paul talks to us today, in some ways he is asking for us to be unified in the Spirit which means we have to start accepting the parts of the church that might be so different from us that we might just call it exotic. Did you hear about that preacher down the street? They did a song that was chanting back and forth. It was exotic. No, we call it Gregorian, but that's okay, right? Could you imagine back in the medieval times, They talked, you know, that church down the road where Mozart is, they put in a pipe organ. It was, yes, you can say it, exotic. Do you kind of hear here this kind of strangeness of this other stuff? Have you ever wondered about other churches? I know when I come to a new appointment, one of the most important questions I ask the district superintendent is, do I have to wear a robe? Because, you know, every church does worship differently. As we uh, look at Scripture, Paul is calling us to think about how united we are, how unified we are, how much we have taken the patience and the love that God has showered on us and used it with our neighbors as we come to be the body of Christ. Let me get my notes here in the right place. So let's continue reading Scripture. 
So I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Full stop. Did you know you have a calling? Did you know that God created you for a very specific purpose? And that when you're in the right place at the right time, allowing God to move through you, those gifts and that calling comes alive. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't know anything about calling. I just know about duty. And when someone calls you to volunteer with Sunday school, you should, because other people did it, right? Duty's such a strange word. Paul says here, live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one another in love. Huh. Sounds like he's talking about the gifts of the Spirit, right? Peace, patience, love, joy, gentleness, kindness, and self-control. Verse 3, Paul says, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That, That would be the ability to take our little C's, using Anthony's metaphor, and make one big C that makes sense to the world around us. Uh, Paul then says in verse 4, because there is, get ready for it, there's a number, one. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. That oneness seems fascinating. I mean, you would say that the church in America looks like it is one. Well, I mean, within each denomination, we're, we're quite united, right? Uh, um, how many uh, jokes have been told by preachers about particular denominational Christians getting to heaven and finding that they're all, you know, um, it was only all of us that got there, Right? And then, you know, walking around the expanse of heaven, you find another conference room with a whole lot of people who worship differently from you, and you say, wait a minute, I thought only Methodists got to heaven. Yep, over there are the Pentecostals. They think they're only here as well, right? This this idea of oneness is something that we could learn some about. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all. I want to spend a little time talking about with patience. With patience. So with patience, we should bear one another up so that we might be one. With patience. Now, I know patience is good because if I slow down and take my time, my blood pressure is lower when I go see my doctor, right? Patience. It's a good thing for us to practice. But really, patience is a work of love. I like to think of how much God has patience with us throughout our lives as we continue to strive to get it right, but sometimes miss the mark. It's not unlike if you've ever babysat a three-year-old. How much patience do you need to babysit a three-year-old? I've always said that I'm good when they get to be in junior high. I could watch junior high and high school kids all day long. My wife is more of the early childhood set. I don't really survive past three why questions. 
You know what I'm saying. But why? But why? But why? And at that point, I'm like, and we're calling your mom, you know? <laughs> That's that kind of patience, right? We, we tend to think of the patience that's required for unity and peace as being patience with people outside the church, right? We'll just be patient with those pagans until they figure out that we're right. We'll just be patient with the world until they realize they're wrong. But in reality, the patience that we know the best is the patience that we find God giving us through that grace that overwhelming agape love, patience. Now, what's interesting about this passage, chapter four, the first section of verses is about what number? One, right? It's about unity. One God, one Father, uh, one baptism, one Lord of all. But notice the transition that's made at verse nine. It says, uh, let's take verse seven. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it is said, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. That's a, a paraphrase that Paul's making here out of the Psalms about this kind of triumphal entry into the temple, that as God, our King, assumes the throne there in the temple, you can think of uh, as in heaven, right? He has um, set the captives free. Paul twists that just a little bit to say that Christ has made captivity his captive, meaning that Christ has set us all free. And on top of that, he gave us gifts. Now, if you go back and read in the Psalms, the psalmist actually says he received gifts as if, you know, we were worshiping God on his throne and we gave gifts, right? When you're Paul, you get to change scripture. No, I thought more laughter, but okay, I'm good. Whatever, it works. Um, verse nine, when it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? And he who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Now, we're really smart people. If you dig a hole, you can get to the center of the earth, right? But that's a different kind of descended than what Scripture is saying. Scripture is actually kind of embracing that Apostles' Creed moment where after Jesus was resurrected and had ascended to heaven, he descended and he set the captives free. And then he ascended. Now, when we think about ascended, we think about uh, space. We think about where, um, you know, um, Jeff Bezos spent his fortune and where the guy from Virgin Atlantic spent his fortune, right? Nope, not talking about that. You do know that there was a Russian cosmonaut um, uh, who won uh, accomplished uh, orbital space. One of his proclamations was that um, the Christians are wrong there's no God up here in heaven because he was in space, right? But when uh, Ephesians talks about ascended, um, in the Bible, when we ascend, we often ascend closer to the heart of God. And so this is talking about how not only Jesus has set the captives free and given us gifts, but he has ascended to the heart of God as well. 
And here we get into an interesting conundrum. Verse 11, the gifts he gave were that some would be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, it's hard for me not to preach on Ephesians 4 without thinking about the Genesis story of the Tower of Babel. Anybody remember the Tower of Babel, right? This was when the people all got together. They had learned one language. They had decided on one goal. You hear the one, don't you, right? Uh, And particularly, they were going to build a tower. Most scholars say it was probably a ziggurat, one of these step type of pyramids. And their explicit purpose in the story was to storm the gates of heaven, to, to take over, to, to become God. And what does God do? God goes, right? And the tower was no more. And he scattered the people. And that's where we supposedly get the word Babel, because he confused their language. Now, bookend that story with the story out of Acts chapter 2 of Pentecost Instead of um, the people uh, uh, um, having one thing and heading towards God, God instead has one thing and heads towards us. That instead of having one language to accomplish one thing, God gives many languages in the Pentecostal experience. And instead of this idea that we'll take over and be in charge, God has released his spirit so that it might be a story told to all nations, that all might know. Friends, the challenge of the unity in the Spirit, in the bond of peace, is that we are um, pretty dead set that unity should look like uniformity. That's a pretty good turn of phrase, wasn't it? That that uniformity sometimes squishes out the diversity of the gifts that God's given And without the diversity of the gifts that God's given, it's hard to live a life worthy of the calling in which you've been called. If uniformity is the the idea of the day, then it really is just about duty. And so do your duty. But nobody finds joy out of just doing their duty. What Paul says is that we've been given gifts. Some of you are apostles, Some of you are prophets. Some of you are evangelists. Some of you are pastors and teachers. And that the work we have to do is to build up the body of Christ. In fact, um, Paul goes on to say, our work is to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body. Anybody been to the gym lately? The building up of the body, strengthening the muscles the tendons, getting um, the body ready to handle anything that's about to come. Until all of us come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to measure, uh, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. And then Paul goes from preaching to meddling. Have you ever heard that phrase before? Right? That's when the preacher doesn't talk about generalities, but starts calling out names, Right? Nobody likes that. Um, Paul says, we must no longer be children tossed to and fro and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. 
But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Speaking the truth in love. Is it possible to speak the truth um, and it not be in love? Can I get an amen from somebody, right? I often say that I am good with feedback, especially if it's constructive criticism or authentic affirmation. You might notice I don't often hang at the back of the sanctuary waiting for the long line of good sermons, good sermons, good sermons. That's not because I don't appreciate the affirmation. It's because I know if I don't pay attention to what I'm doing and saying, I might say, which part? And then there's that awkward moment because we were just doing social pleasantries, but then I just made it serious because you said good sermon and I said what part? You know, speaking the truth in love. How do we build up each other in such a way that we become more faithful, that we become able to do the work that God's called us to without destroying or tearing down what's already here? Speaking the truth in love. I think that's one of the most hard things to come across these days in our culture Speaking the truth in love. Because you can go on social media and ask a question, and you'll be slayed with slings and arrows along the way. You could be passive and just read a little bit on social media to find out what the right answer is. And what you'd find is a curated experience of people who are presenting their best life while you're still stuck with having to handle both the good days, the bad days, and the days that are in between. But that opportunity to hear feedback, to speak the truth in love, might really only come not from social media, but from relationships where people spend the time together to get vulnerable, to get intimate, to get truthful, all for the purpose of loving. I think one of the things about our world these days, the hardening of the categories, the uh, misinformation, the, the idea that we kind of stay in our own echo chambers, is that we never really get to the place of staying in the uncomfortableness to learn that what we think is so strange and exotic is really just our neighbor, and that God's called us to love our neighbor in such a way that we might be able to be blessed with the responsibility of unity in the Spirit and the bond of peace. Paul ends out by saying, but speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth and building itself up in love. I think the best way for me to understand this last piece is um, we know what it's like when a part of the body doesn't work well together. I think the easiest is to kind of think about transplant uh, patients and what happens when um, that new uh, organ is rejected. There's so much in the science of medicine of trying to make it so that that new organ is accepted. Or think about those of us who, um, uh, you know, people in our community who suffer from autoimmune disorders. That's where the body has um, lost the idea of what is foreign and what is part of it. 
and begins attacking parts that are uh, good and important for the body, and instead of identifying parts that are uh, foreign and dangerous. That when we think about the church, are we suffering from an autoimmune disorder? Where we are pushing out uh, people who like to wear robes and leading worship. That's probably not my best illustration. Um, are we pushing out folk who are so different and other that we can't accept that they might love God as much as we love God as well? So I'm going to say something that all of the experts say, don't mention it, right? But in about a year or so, the United Methodist Church will gather together to have a global conversation about the future of the church. And for many folk who write about this, it may result in a schism of our denomination. There might be a conservative and a liberal. And I don't really want to talk about conservative and liberalism, but I just want to talk about how powerful it is when Ephesians says one of our responsibilities is to be part of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, to speak the truth in love, to be mature and to grow up and to not be tossed by different winds of doctrine. I have no idea what the future will hold, but I know who holds the future. Yes, sometimes this preacher uh, resorts to hallmark phrases because it reminds him of who's in charge. And so in the midst of the year to come, let's work on loving each other, sticking with it in the rough times, listening to each other when we're vulnerable, being willing to say things that are important even if we don't know how well it'll be received on the other end. Because at the end of the day, loving God and serving our neighbors is powerful. The rest of it will get sorted out. You have to coordinate that amen next time, to like right at the end. But it's okay, I like your check's in the mail. Um, so having taken uh, the bull by the horns, uh, recognizing that Ephesians talks about three gifts, and today we talked about the first responsibility. Let us love God with our whole hearts as we go to the table as a family. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.